Good morning. Yesterday was a horrible, horrible day in sports, uh, if you weren't paying attention. Um, and I know you were wondering, uh, but just to put you at ease early, I am going to talk about Tim Tebow in my sermon today. And so uh, I think that's required around America this morning. Uh, uh, but uh, one thing that you do see in sports is this major dichotomy in age, right? Uh, there's a big difference between uh, somebody that's 23 years old that's in uh, professional sports and somebody that's 39. I, I joke about sports years, and I always say that some of our Blazers are like 150 in, in basketball years or whatever, and, uh, and that's the case, right? Uh, and sometimes that type of thinking transfers into the church. We have that kind of view within the church that there is this giant separation between the generations, that, that we are completely different or something like that. And uh, hopefully uh, through the last couple of weeks we've, we've done an okay job of saying, okay, well, uh, this aging process doesn't begin at, at some random point at certain years after they've gone by, but, but aging is something that happens as we recognize our own mortality, and that happens at all ages. And no matter what age we are at, the, the thing that makes that okay is the love of Jesus filling us up as we see things disappear from our lives. And because we recognize how fast it goes, uh, the hope is that we will leave a legacy here. We can either deny that we're going to someday die, or we can embrace that and say, hey, I want to leave a legacy here on this earth. And we can do that uh, in the ways that Paul showed us last week, through praying for people, through spreading the gospel, and, and helping people grow in their, their joy and in the faith. And, and so hopefully uh, what we've seen is that aging happens at all ages, that, that we're all aging, uh, and, and because of that we all need to do certain things if we're going to do it well. Today we're going to continue that theme, and uh, I'll be honest with you, um, when you're preaching a, a topical sermon series uh, and you're trying to do it in a biblical way, it's a pretty difficult thing to do. Uh, it's easy to go, I'm going to find these verses throughout the Bible and I'll squeeze them together and uh, make kind of a topic burrito of Bible passages. But it's hard to go, hey, where does the Bible talk about this? Because I really want to learn what this passage of Scripture says about uh, the aging process. And, and so that's a difficult thing to do. Uh, it's easier just to pick a book and say, next week I'm going to teach on this. Uh, and so as I'm looking and I'm finding passages, I found Titus 2, 1 through 15, if you want to open your Bibles there. And uh, what I thought I would teach about Titus and Titus 2 is very different than, than how it ended up. And as I was reading this passage, it talks about older people and younger people. And so uh, as I was preparing the sermon series, I thought, wow, this really applies. And, 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 you know, we'll be able to talk about what different age groups need to do. But as I studied the passage this past week, uh, what I discovered is that, that Paul, writing to Titus, is not saying things specifically to age groups. He is talking about how we need to live at all ages, and then he gives some specifics to the different age groups within his church. And you'll see what I mean in a minute, but the passage can pretty much be summed up in verse 1 where it says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Um, now, first of all, you've got to understand something. Uh, uh, Titus is a guy, young guy probably, uh, that is on the island of Crete. And I think we might have a picture of that. Uh, Crete is, a, is an island in the Mediterranean area. Um, there it is. So you can see the island of Crete here. And it's a pretty large island. And 
Paul, along with Titus, who he's now writing to, uh, sometime earlier, had, had gone to this island and they had proclaimed the gospel and people had become Christians. Along with that, some of the earliest believers in Christianity, when, when Peter and, and Acts gives his first sermon where 5,000 people become Christians and the church kind of begins on the day of Pentecost, uh, some of those people were also from Crete. And so... Christianity has kind of come into Crete, but there hasn't been any people who, who we would consider elders or pastors in this town. And so Paul leaves Titus there to be an overseer of all the churches. Now, if you look at it, this is a pretty good-sized island. This is, not, uh, this is not like Oahu and Hawaii or Kauai. It's, it's even bigger than uh, the main island of Hawaii. And so uh, we're talking about a large island here, and there's churches throughout this island in the different cities. And so Paul is writing this letter to Titus to say, hey, here's what you need to instruct these churches. Here's how you can help them live out the faith that they have come to. Okay? And so, so Titus is there, and Paul writes this letter, and 2 1 uh, really gives a summary of, of what Paul is trying to instruct Titus to do. He says, You need to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, in verses 2 through 10, what we see. Paul do is he starts to talk about the way in which people live and he talks about different uh, segments of life, age specifics and then slavery. Uh, and here he says, teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, a lot of times when we think of sound doctrine or theology, we think that it is disconnected from the way that people live their lives. Uh, when you hear the word theology, you think of somebody in a classroom talking about something that probably doesn't have much bearing on your life. But Paul didn't see it that way. Paul says here, hey, I want you to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And then he goes into the way in which these people should be living their lives in light of that theology. And so for Paul, there was no disconnect between theology and the way in which a person lives. In a book by guys with the last names Grins and Olson uh, called Who Needs Theology? Great book. I would recommend it. Uh, pretty simple read. Uh, they say in their book that we are all theologians. And, and their point is that every person has theological understandings. And they go on to say that you're either a good theologian or a bad theologian. That decision is up to you. Uh, the, the strongest atheist is a theologian, and their theology says that God doesn't exist, right? And, and there are many Christians who, who, who don't think about God ever, uh, barely anyway, uh, but they are theologians, and their theology says, well, God doesn't really care about how much I interact with Him on a daily basis. And hopefully somewhere, uh, uh, we in this room are somewhere in, in between, uh, well, on the other end, not in between, uh, further away uh, from those atheists, not in between. And, and we are recognizing that God is a loving God and a caring God, and, and our theology is going to drive us to live a certain way. And that is what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, look, I want you to teach people to live a life that reflects good theology, good understanding of doctrine. Now, we're going to skip now to the bottom of the passage because the bottom of the passage, verses 11 through 14 specifically, are the theology that Paul is referring to when he, when he shows the life that these people are supposed to live. And so let me read 11 through 14 to you and you can follow along in your Bibles. For the grace of God has appeared uh, that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age 
while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself, a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So for Paul, he connects it here. He says four. And he's saying, look, these things that I've told you in verses 2 through 10, they're all connected to this theology that I'm about to share with you now, this sound doctrine that I'm going to share with you now. So he's telling Titus, hey, when you teach these people to live these lives that I have just expressed to you, it needs to be connected to these theological statements that I am about to make. The first of those is that the grace has now appeared and it offers salvation to all people. Now, grace has been defined as unmerited favor or undeserved favor. And uh, we understand that grace is something that God did for us and it's amazing and, and all of those things. But we don't often think about the fact that that grace appeared on this earth. We don't often think that there was a, a moment in time when, when all of a sudden people were able to see grace for what it really was. We, we should know that that appearing came through Jesus. That when Jesus stepped onto the earth, grace was shown for the very first time in its fullest form on this planet. Before Jesus lived, we, we may have understood grace as human beings. We may have had a, an understanding of what it might be, unmerited favor or something like that. But grace had not appeared in its fullest form until Jesus lived on this earth. In Luke 1, 76 through 79, Zechariah is talking about his son, John the Baptist, but he refers to Jesus in the middle of this, this greater speech about how great his son will be. And here's what he says. And you, my child, talking about his son, will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace. So we see here that Zechariah refers to his son as the one who will prophesy about the guy who is going to make grace that brings salvation appear on this earth. Simeon, who was a, a guy waiting to see the the salvation that God would bring onto the earth talks in, in Luke chapter 2 and Mary and Joseph walk into the temple and uh, they're just going there for the regular purposes of Jewish life and all of a sudden this guy named Simeon who's been waiting to see the salvation of Israel and the world really comes up and he grabs the baby and then uh, and then he says here for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon knew that he was going to see the grace of God and he was waiting to see the grace of God that would bring salvation. And this little baby Jesus is brought in and all of a sudden Simeon picks him up and goes, Hey, I can die now because I have seen the grace of God that will bring salvation. And so we see in the person of Jesus, that, that grace has literally appeared to the earth. We may have understood it in, in some type of logical, head knowledge type of way, but before Jesus existed on this planet, grace had not appeared in its fullest form. But when he did appear, grace appeared along with him. Here Paul says that that grace and that salvation were offered to all people. Now, there are people who want to make this... Uh, 
make this something that it is not. Uh, first of all, universalism. And there are, there are people who will say, well, hey, salvation has come to all people. And so uh, it doesn't matter what people believe or what people think about Jesus. They get to go to heaven because uh, that is the type of loving God that we serve. Uh, this has become popular recently uh, in the book Love Wins, and, and basically in that book he, he pushes that concept that God uh, in his infinite love cannot send people to hell and so, that, so all people are saved through the grace of God. But, but that is not what Paul is saying here because we read other places throughout the New Testament and in the books of Paul that salvation comes through a relationship with Jesus. Paul makes very clear that lots of people will be destroyed with an eternal destruction. So Paul is not saying here that, that all people will be saved. He is saying that salvation has been offered to all people. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And he says there is no name under heaven except my name in which people will be saved. And so the Bible makes clear that salvation is only for those who accept it. But on the flip side, there are other people who want to make this just about believers. These people uh, would go by the name Calvinists or Reformed, and they would say, well, what Paul really means here is not that salvation was offered to all people, but instead, salvation was offered to all who would believe. Now, I, I like John MacArthur, and, and I read his stuff pretty frequently, but uh, to read him on this passage of Scripture, he is very, very Calvinistic in his theology and very, very Reformed, uh, more so than, than most Calvinist or Reformed people. To read him on this passage of Scripture was like watching uh, a gymnastics routine. Uh, he was trying to say... And, and he spent pages and pages trying to dance around the subject that Jesus had only died and offered salvation to those who actually believed. But, but that is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that Jesus' salvation brought grace to all people and it is offered to everybody. And so it's just as crystal clear as can be right here in this passage. Jesus came here to offer salvation to the entire earth. People only get that salvation if they give their lives to Jesus and believe in Him. And so Paul is saying, look, this salvation has come to all people. And that is the first part of this. And, and this next part, this next phrase is, is really baffling to me. But uh, I think we'll, we'll have an understanding of it maybe by the time we're done. But he says that this grace and this salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Now, when we think of grace and when we think of salvation, we do not think of saying no, right? We don't think of something as good and nice as grace as teaching us about the way in which we should live our lives. That word teaches is actually a word that can mean educate or train and even can mean discipline. And so the idea that Paul is putting forward is, is really in some ways an oxymoron this, in our thinking. This grace is, is now disciplining us to live a more godly life. But when you look through the New Testament, you see that, that this thinking is, is abundantly clear. You see that what trains us to live a godly life is not a set of rules, but it is the grace of God that draws, him, draws us into a loving relationship with Him. Throughout the New Testament, what you see is that a real relationship with Jesus that recognizes how wonderful God is will always draw us to live more fully for God. When we say in our society that, that grace does not 
does not cause us to change our lives, we are making a ridiculous statement. The Bible says that grace always will cause you to change your life when you recognize it. So the reason that James is able to say so clearly, grace without works is dead, because James is looking and saying, if you accept the grace and the salvation that comes through Jesus, then you will have a changed life. In the American church, for, for far too long, you've seen this idea of grace that says, well, grace allows you to do anything that you want to do, and then you get to go to heaven at the end of it. But the Bible says grace will cause you to live an entirely different life. And the life that you want to live is going to be a life that follows uh, the, the Lord that we serve, that follows the example of Jesus. And so when you think about grace, I, I just I think it's so important for us to understand that grace is not this thing that comes upon us and then gets us into heaven someday, but grace is the very thing that causes us to have a changed life. And we'll see why uh, even more in a second. But he says, this grace is teaching you, and he, he says, first of all, some negative things. He says that it's teaching us to say no to ungodliness. It's teaching us to say no to a life that does not reflect that of God. Ungodliness can be defined as impiety directed against what should be held sacred. Hence, godlessness, practical impiety. And so Paul is saying that the first thing that the grace teaches us to do is to not live a life that says, I don't care about what God thinks. I don't care about God. A life that doesn't reflect the existence of God in heaven. And so grace should cause us, especially because God has given us that grace, to say, hey, I'm going to live a life that reflects that there is a God living in heaven. The second thing he says is, is no to worldly passions. Now, worldly passions can refer to sins that have not been committed yet. It just is talking about the desires that we have within us. And so Paul is saying here, not, that just, not just that, Grace will lead us to a place where we are no longer doing bad things, but grace should lead us to a place where we no longer want to do things that we would consider bad. Grace leads us to a place where we want to serve God, we want to glorify God, we don't want to give in to the sins and the, and the things in this world that don't reflect our God in heaven. Uh, now he switches to the positive here and he says three things. He says, first of all, self-controlled. He says self-controlled, and then he says upright and godly. Now, self-controlled is the major, major theme throughout the whole passage of Scripture. And every one of the groups that are listed in verses 2 through 10, he talks about being self-controlled. He says it to the, the old men. He says it to the uh, old women. He says it to the young women. He says it to the young men. And then he says it... Uh, in a different way to the slaves that he speaks to in verses 2 through 10. And so it's a pretty important theme through Paul, but it's a pretty difficult word to understand because it's actually not the same word that is translated self-control throughout most of the Bible. That word is different. The word, for example, that you see in the fruit of the Spirit when it says self-controlled, not the same word. This word actually refers to being sober, uh, as in the opposite of being drunk. And it really has the idea of a sound mind, uh, a prudent mind, or, or a life that is acting discreetly, if you will. And so, when Paul says this, he isn't just talking about the avoidance of sins, but he is talking about a mind that lives stably, that is consistent, 
that is, that is the same today and tomorrow and the next day. And that mind must be changed by right theology and a right understanding of God. And so when, when Paul is saying, hey, I want you to teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine, well, of course, this idea of being sober or self-controlled is, is at the very heart of that because it's talking about having a mind that is clear and is consistent in our service of God. And so Paul says here that grace should lead us to a life that says, hey, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to do consistent things. I'm not going to be up and down. I'm going to today live for God, and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up again and live for God because I recognize the grace and the salvation that He has, that he has offered. The next word is upright, and this means justly or righteously. It just means to live a proper life, to be a proper follower of God. And you've heard me say this before, I think, but, uh, but righteousness is really a word that that refers to having a right relationship with somebody. And the Jewish people would have used this word uh, for all types of relationships. They would have used it for a husband and wife relationship. And if a husband and wife had a good relationship, then that word uh, would have been used, this righteous word. It, uh, for a father and a son, this word would have been used if that relationship was good and it was correct. And so when it's applied to God... Uh, it is referring to having a right relationship with God and, and living the correct way based on the relationship that you have with Him. The next word is godly and just refers to living a life that reflects God and, and the principles of God. In the book of First Peter, he says, Be perfect because God is perfect. And, and what, what Paul is saying here is we need to reflect God in the way that we live our lives. 1 Timothy 3.12 also uses this word, and it's interesting. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So often in our society, we're taught to do things that are not difficult, to do the easy thing, the nice thing. And, and so godliness sometimes gets thrown to the side because we say, if I'm too godly, if I live too much like God, then people aren't going to like me as much. But Paul in 1 Timothy made pretty clear that if we do live godly, then we will be persecuted. They go hand in hand. And so we must say, hey, am I going to let grace teach me to live godly despite the circumstances? Or am I going to say, God, I don't care about your grace. This is too difficult. Jesus is the perfect example of that in, in how to live a godly life. And also in 1 Peter, uh, he says that Jesus is the... Hoopagraman, and it means writing underneath. It's, uh, it's a reference to how they used to teach writing during the time in which Paul wrote. And they would basically use tracing paper, uh, not like our tracing paper today, but the same idea. And uh, the teacher would write something, and the, the child would write over it a letter or whatnot or a word. And, and that is what, what Jesus has described at in the New Testament. To live a godly life is to trace the life of Jesus and to follow the life of Jesus and to do things His way. And so Paul says, look, these things here, there's negative things, there's good things. I want you to avoid certain stuff. I want you to add certain stuff. Not because of the rules. Not because you ought to. Not because you shouldn't. But because grace is training you. He goes on and he connects this to the glorious hope that we have. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, this is a pretty cool statement because 
Blessed hope is referring to the second coming of Jesus, but he uses two really neat words. The first one there, blessed, and this is something that uh, if you're in the younger generations in this church, you've heard me talk about a lot, but this is the Greek word makarios. And makarios is the best word in the New Testament uh, because makarios uh, is this, this wonderful thing that Christians can have. It's the word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Same word. And the word was a word that was used for the Greek gods. And it was used of the Greek gods because they had, they had unlimited resources. But not only that, they had unlimited ability and time to use those resources. And so, you know, in our modern day context, we really like food, right? And, and, and I think about cake, uh, and I, I really like cake. I miss cake. I can't eat it anymore unless it's gluten free. It's not quite the same. But, but, you know, sometimes you got like this great piece of chocolate turtle cake right in front of you, right? Uh, and, and if you never had a, a piece of good turtle cake, then go get one before you have to go gluten-free like the rest of the world. Uh, and so just picture this uh, turtle cake with the chocolate frosting and, and the chocolate cake and then the caramel in the middle, and it's perfect, right? Now, we have a limit. This is our problem. You start eating, and you're like, this is so good. And at some point, your stomach goes... I can't do it anymore. You, you've, you've reached a limit here, right? But makarios is a word that means I can eat my turtle cake forever. I can just keep putting it in my mouth. I'm not going to get larger. My stomach is not going to fill up. I just get to keep eating it. And, and I get that satisfying feeling when you put the first spoonful or forkful in your mouth forever, right? And so Jesus uses this word and says Christians can have this. Christians in the current context can have this makarios, which I would define as and have defined as internal satisfaction that is not based on external circumstances. It's a satisfaction that, that, that is not based on anything that is going on around us. And now here, Paul says, hey, this return of Jesus needs to be in the forefront of your minds because it's the, the fullest recognition of the grace that is going to be brought to you is when Jesus comes back and it will bring you internal satisfaction that isn't based on external circumstances because the external circumstances will be forever perfect. And so he says, when you're thinking about how grace is guiding your life and causing you to do things and avoid things, you must have in the forefront of that mind the return of Jesus that will come Someday. The word hope is a word also that the New Testament uses differently than, than anybody, than anybody that ever has used the word before. When we, when we talk about hope in our society, we talk about wishful thinking, right? That's kind of what we mean. We, we hoped that Tim Tebow uh, would win yesterday, but that wasn't going to happen. That's not the only Tim Tebow reference I'll make. Uh, but, but hope, you know, I hope that I'll win the lottery even though I don't play it. I have that hope that I'll find a lottery ticket and win it. But that's just wishful thinking, right? Uh, I hope these things. But when the New Testament uses the word hope, it's talking about something that you can be sure of. It's talking about having a confident expectancy that something is going to happen. And so Paul here is saying, look, this grace teaches you to live a certain way. But if you're really going to follow through on that, then you must have your confident expectancy set on the internal satisfaction that will be forevermore when Jesus returns to this earth. 
If you are going to live the life that grace is training you to live, is educating you to live, then you must have the grace of God when He returns at the forefront of your minds. goes on from there and he explains this grace to us and it's pretty cool. He says that Jesus gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness, to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. Now, if I'm writing, then I would have put this at the beginning. Uh, but we're getting to it now. And, and here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, look, I want to define the grace for you. I'm talking about it. I'm alluding to it. I'm saying that this grace will train you and will make you happy forevermore. But wait, here is what the grace is. That Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify us. Now, the first thing that you have to notice is that Jesus gave himself up for us. Sometimes I think we just assume that this master plan of God was a must, that God had to, that uh, there was no other way, but that's not the case at all. Jesus looked down from heaven, where it was really good, I'm assuming, and said, look, those people are sinners. And here's what I'm going to do because I want to have a relationship with them. I'm going to go down there and I'm going to give up my life. I'm going to make the decision to die for their sins so that they may have eternal life if they will accept that gift. And so when you think about the grace of God, don't picture something that had to take place. Picture something that Jesus willingly did for you on the cross. He stepped out of heaven so that you might be saved. And if you will give your life to Him, you will get the eternal satisfaction that Paul mentioned in the last verse. On top of that, we see here that He did it for us. That's pretty fantastic, right? I mean, just to hear that Jesus died for us is really neat. I think we focus so much on verses like John 3.16 where God so loved the world that we sometimes forget that God loved us. When Jesus gave up His life, it wasn't just for humanity, it was for you. It was for every person who sits in this room right now and the wickedness that you have done, the sins that you have committed, every wrong thing, every trespass, everything that was bad in the history of your life, Jesus chose to to give Himself up for that. To cleanse you from it and to purify you from it. And so when you talk about the grace of God, you must look to the fact that Jesus Christ willingly gave His life so that you might be saved from your sins. And what Paul is saying is that that recognition, that the God of the universe came down out of heaven to give His life for you, should be training and teaching you to live a life that is is following hard after Him. The truth is that we will never change because we make a list of rules. The truth is that we will never change because we say, I should live a certain way. It's just not going to happen. But if we, if we will look at the grace of Jesus, the grace of Jesus where He stepped out of heaven and died the most horrible death that the world has ever known, both physically and spiritually, if we will look at that, then it begins to change the way in which we live our lives. That is what Paul is saying. And he's saying to Titus, hey, you need to teach these people to live in accordance with that. Now what's really cool at the end of this 
is is that he doesn't just leave it there. He says that he's that he's given this grace to make a people that is are his very own to to draw us into a relationship with him. And as people with a relationship with him, notice we should be eager to do what is good because of that grace. Eager to do what is good. Two things that you need to understand. First of all, eager is the same word that was used of of the zealots. And the zealots were people that hated the Roman Empire. And you see, the Israelites at the time of Jesus were basically uh, under slavery, under under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And a lot of countries were, a lot of people groups were, but the Israelites were one of those. And some of the Israelites dealt with it okay. They they tried to fit in with the Roman scheme and, and do things the Roman way and build a life under that Roman Empire. But other people didn't like it at all. And so they fought back against the Romans. And they would do things such as stab a Roman soldier and then run off in the middle of a crowd, leaving them there to die. This is what the zealots did. They fought in this way. They did whatever they had to do, even risking imprisonment or death, in order to get rid of the Roman Empire. And here Paul uses the same word to say, look, out of the grace that you see, you should be zealous. You should be eager to do what is good. Good can also be translated beautiful. I love the word. It doesn't just mean like do the right thing. It means do something that is beautiful. Live a life that is beautiful. And so Paul here is saying, if I can sum him up, the grace that God has given you, if you really take it seriously, it should teach you and compel you to live a life that is beautiful, to strive more than anything else, to live a life that reflects His glorious and His holiness and His wonderfulness and the life that He lived when He was on this planet. Some of you have heard this story before, but the day that my life was changed was not a day when I said, hey, I'm going, I'm going to live more fully for Jesus now. The day my life was changed was the day when I recognized that I was a wretched sinner and Jesus had given His life for me. And I recognized it so clearly on that day that I cried and cried and cried because it just didn't make sense to me that the God of the universe would love me, Chad Harms, that much. And and from that day forward, no, I have not been perfect, but I have been different. And I have been compelled to strive to be eager to do what is good. Not because I, I said I'll do more good, but because I recognize the love of Jesus more. It's a pretty cool deal. And so for, for you today, if I can follow in, in Titus' footsteps, I just want to say that. Don't be focused on doing better. Be focused on letting the grace of God impact your life more fully because the story of Jesus coming here to save us from sins is compelling and it will draw us to a point where we are zealous to do what is good and what is beautiful in this world. Now in verses 2 through 10, which I don't have time to talk about in full, he says some great things. And he says some age-specific things. And some of those are cool because they talk specifically to age groups in 
all years in history. But some of them are specific probably to their age groups. For example, he says, hey, older women don't be given to much wine. And in our society today, I, I don't think that older women have more of an alcohol problem than younger women. I don't think that's the case. And so if it was written today, I think Paul would have written it a little bit differently. Even at his time, if he wasn't writing to the island of, of Cree, it would have been written differently. And so, uh, so go through those, but understand that the basis of all of it is what we have just said. But there are four things that I want to point out. Paul points out four incentives to, to striving for this beautiful life because we recognize the grace. And uh, there are things that, that will happen if we will do that as a church and we will do that as a people group. And so I'm going to run through them very quickly. Uh, first of all, he says, so that no one will malign the word of God. He says, one of the results of you living a beautiful life because of the grace you have been offered is that no one will be able to say bad stuff about the gospel. They will look at the gospel and say, wow, I want to hate it, but look at how it has changed that person's life. Another one is, is this, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. This is where you insert the name Tim Tebow, right? You look at Tim Tebow and people really want to hate him. I mean, they do, because he gets so much media attention, because he's, uh, he's so straightforward about his faith and why he plays the game, because he refuses to let his emotions ride on whether or not they are winning or losing, or people are saying good and bad things about him. People look at him and they go, man, that annoys me, right? Uh, and some of you are probably even annoyed by seeing Tim Tebow pop up on your Facebook 150 times a day, right? It, it can be annoying, but... But Tim Tebow is living a life right now that, that is so outstanding that he is really saying, hey, you can talk bad about me, but I'm, I'm going to put you to shame because I'm spending time with girls who have had 73 surgeries after I win, and I would have spent time with this girl afterwards. If you haven't read the story, get on ESPN and read about it. I would have spent time with her even if I lost, and I would have loved her and cared about her just the same. And so Tim Tebow is exemplifying this on a great scale. And some, some other Christians who aren't as famous are too. And some other Christians probably on other teams uh, are as well. Uh, but Tim Tebow is publicly doing this in an amazing way. Uh, another one is that, uh, and I'll, leave with the, I'll end with this one. So that in every way we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. This is the word that gives us the word cosmetics. Uh, and Paul is saying, if we will live a beautiful life based on the grace that God has given us, then we, then we will make the gospel prettier. Then the people in this world will look at it and go, wow, that is attractive. I want to be a part of that. And so, I, I'll just say this. If we will more fully recognize the wonderful, amazing grace of God, and we will allow it to compel us to strive for a life that is good and beautiful, then it will result in wonderful things throughout the world. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you uh, for this passage of Scripture. I thank you that, that uh, your grace is so amazing, God, that you love us so much. And I pray that, that we would strive, God, to live more fully for you, not because we should or we ought, but because we love you so much, God, and we want to give back to you just a little bit of what you have given to us. Thank you, God. I pray these things in your name. Amen.